We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Please take your Bibles and join me in turning to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 as we continue our journey together through the life of Moses. I told you a couple of weeks ago that there's not a single life that has impacted the world, that has impacted culture, other than Jesus Christ, more than Moses. And so as we travel through his life together, you've already seen how incredible it is what God has done through him and with him, and we're going to continue to see that together today. But the passage you're turning to this morning is one of the most incredible passages, certainly in all of the Old Testament, because we encounter two terms that we have never seen before up to Exodus chapter 3. In fact, it may surprise you that we didn't see these words all the way through Genesis. We haven't seen them through the first two chapters of Exodus. And then all of a sudden, we come across these two terms. The first of those terms is the word holy. The very first time in Scripture that we encounter the word holy is we see it when God tells Moses that he is standing on holy ground. In fact, the only time in Scripture that we see the word holy ground is actually in Exodus chapter 3. The word holy means that something is set apart, and we're going to talk about that more in just a few minutes. But the other word we see that we haven't encountered yet in Scripture that word is the very name of God. As we get toward the end of the verses that we're going to read together, you're going to see that Moses is going to ask God, who am I going to tell them sent me? And God is going to say, I am who I am. Now, I want you to know that in Hebrew, the letters of that expression, that Y-H-W-H is the way we would transliterate that into English. But that very word, the word I am who I am, transliterates to the word Yahweh. And the word was so reverent and so holy that back before they added vowel pointings, because in Hebrew, um, Hebrew is actually read, instead of being read from left to right, it's read from right to left. And as you read it, the very, very earliest manuscripts we have, they didn't even put vowel pointings. So all you had was what we know as consonants. They came back later and put systems of dashes and dots that were over those continents, consonants so you would know where to place the vowel sounds. And we know from that that the word would be pronounced Yahweh. But throughout the Old Testament, the Jews very seldom, if ever, use the word Yahweh. In fact, when we hear the word, when they talk about Jehovah or sometimes the word Adonai or Lord, they would substitute Jehovah for Yahweh because of the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, they were told to do what? Never to take the Lord's name in vain. So they were careful never to even say the word Yahweh because they didn't want to be in danger of taking the name in vain. So this word is a holy name. It's an important name, and you know that names are so incredibly important. So as we read together in just a moment, what you're going to see is that as the name of God is revealed, as the person and work of God is revealed, what Moses discovers in these three verses is something that we need to discover as individuals and as the church today. And that is we have to take God on God's terms. That we don't define God. That we don't get to decide who we think God is. That God is not a God of our choosing. That God is not a God of our fashioning. That God is not a God who we think He is. But He is the God who is. He is 
Yahweh. So as we explore this together, I need before we read this, we're going to piggyback on where we left off last week. So I know that all of you that were here last week, you probably remember the sermon perfectly. You probably could walk me through all of the points. You probably remember seven days ago exactly what we said. So I just want to give you a little bit of a test to make sure that you all remember the sermon. But don't worry, I'm not going to make you recite the entire sermon. But if you have notes or you remember back, maybe it is that you'll remember or you have notes on what the very last point was last week. Because we ended last week on what I believe to be a point that resonates throughout Moses' life. And just to give you a little bit of a hint, last week we said that God was not what? That God was not... Y'all remembered that? Everybody in here, give yourself a hand. That is fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of you. That's wonderful. I may keep you an extra 15 minutes today because you just got me so fired up because you're listening and you're engaged and you're involved. God is not finished with you yet. And we're going to see that God is not finished with Moses because if you'll remember last week, we talked about that Moses had grown up as the prince of Egypt. And at the age of 40, he had taken matters into his own hands and you'll remember that he had killed an Egyptian slave master. So at 40, he goes on the run into Midian and he finds himself at a well and he rescues some young ladies who were, the, who were there. He's taken into what would become his father-in-law's house and he ends up marrying a lady by the name of Zipporah and he sets up life in Midian. So we have 40 years before he goes on the run and the Bible tells us that it is 40 years from that point until this point. Now, those of you that are math wizards in here, 40 plus 40 equals what? old. Right. Right. And so we find Moses in an incredible, incredible situation. He thought that life had passed him by. He thought that he was bound to be nothing but a shepherd, a nobody in the midst of Midian. But God wasn't finished with him yet. And we figure out in just a few moments as we read together just how finished God wasn't with Moses. So let's stand together today and read Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight while the bush doesn't burn. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. 
But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that, I, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God, I pray today that you would teach us not to miss the burning bushes in our lives. That we would be a people who worship, who listen, and who, and who obey. God, I pray that you would help me to get out of the way of this incredible Bible text. That people would encounter you, Yahweh, the Holy God. And that, Lord, where they are standing may be holy ground. Because they have met you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So you see that our big idea this morning is simply this. Don't miss the burning bushes in your life. Worship, listen, and obey. Now let me be very clear. It's highly unlikely that you're going to walk out of here and you're going to see an azalea bush that's burning on fire. But I want you to know that just because you don't see that, it's not that God is not trying to speak to you, that God is not trying to get your attention, that God is not calling your name. In fact, in this particular passage, he doesn't call Moses' name once. He calls Moses' name twice. And that's because he wasn't, wants to be sure that Moses doesn't miss it. So I want you to imagine this morning that as we begin this together, that God is calling your name. He's calling your name not once. He's calling your name twice because he wants you to come in close and God wants you to listen. How many times growing up did you hear your name called not once but twice? Most of the time in my house, that wasn't a good thing because if I didn't answer the first time, it was dangerous. Sometimes your name got called twice because you needed to be sure that you were paying attention and you needed to give all of your attention to whoever it was that was speaking your name. But as we open up this Bible text, I want you to see that it was a day for Moses like any other day. It would be just maybe like your day tomorrow or your day Tuesday or Wednesday. He got up and did the same thing that he had been doing for 40 years. He got up to tend flocks. He got up to water the flocks. He got up and did what he always did. 365 days, seven days a week. Nothing was different about the day. Now, I know that sometimes when we read back into the Bible, we make a big mistake. I think I made this mistake growing up. We read spectacular events like this, and we read into them that events like this must have happened for people in the Bible like this all the time. But we misread that because in 80 years of Moses' life, this had never happened. He had never seen a bush burning that had never burned up. He'd never heard the voice of God calling his name, and he'd never seen this. So 80 years have passed, and as strange as it would be to you, if you were to walk outside and azalea bush was on fire and you heard your name called, audibly it was just that strange to Moses but he calls out unto Moses and we see here that on this ordinary day Moses looks over and the bush is on fire now that would get your attention anyway 
Maybe you wondered how the fire started. You wondered why the bush was on fire. Did somebody light this fire? How did this happen? But it would really get your attention when you watched it for just a few moments and recognized that the fire was raging, but it didn't seem to be going out. It was almost like fuel was keeping on being added to the fire. So you walk over because you've got to see what is it that is causing this fire. And as Moses walks over to the fire, he hears the voice of God calling out his name. And Moses is the first person person to ever hear this word spoken, the word holy. Moses, take off your shoes because the place you are standing is holy ground. Now that word holy, that word means set apart, that it is special, that it is different, that it deserves reverential fear before the Lord. So when we say a place is holy, we need to understand why something is holy. Certainly, sometimes people will come in, and even in just a few moments, we're going to sing the song, We Are Standing on Holy Ground. But you need to know this this morning. There's nothing holy about the carpet that's under your feet. There's nothing holy about that pew. There's nothing holy about the concrete that encapsulates this place. There's nothing holy about any of that. The only reason that this moment is holy is because God is in this place. The New Testament tells us that where two or more are gathered in His name, there He is also. And the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. The angels cry out three times in perfection. They call out that God is set apart, that God is holy, that God is different than everything else, that this is holy ground. And then it says that Moses answered the Lord. It says, here I am. But then when God spoke out of the bush, he made a declaration of his person. He said, I am the God. And by the way, that verb tense is important. Stay with me for just a moment. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Now immediately what happens to Moses? It says that he hits the floor because he refuses to look upon the bush because he didn't want to see the face of God because he was afraid that he would be killed. It is the exact same thing that John did in Revelation chapter 17 when he saw a vision of God. It's the exact same thing that Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the vision of God. Friends, we need to get to a place where we understand if we truly encounter God, one of the things that is missing in our day is a holy, reverential fear of God that we don't approach God like we're buddies. We don't come like we're chums with God. We come before the Lord in the humble recognition that we are sinful and that He is not, that we are unrighteous and He is righteous, that we are unholy and He is holy, holy, holy. So when we approach the Lord, friends, I'm inviting you as a church to be a church that approaches the name of God that you approach the great I am with reverential fear because it's only then that God speaks into your life he encounters God as holy and as he has encounters God as holy what we find is that now God is ready to speak and speak into his life and we see some things that take place in this passage and I want them to I want to highlight them to you today because they're important they were important for Moses, but they're important for you. So if you're taking notes today, number one is this. Number one, don't ever give up on what God has in store 
for your life. Don't ever give up on what God has in store for your life. We mentioned that Moses is 80 years old. He's already given up on what might have been. He grew up as the prince of Egypt. Then he thought at 40 he would be the deliverer of Israel. He took things into his own hands. It caused him to be a fugitive that's on the run. Here he is in Midian. He's now married with grown children. He has been been given a wife. He set up camp. And he is simply a shepherd. And so it would have been easy for Moses to say, the best of my life is behind me. And friends, my fear is that there are a lot of you in here that because of your past, because of your circumstances, because of your age, because of anything that's happened in your life, you're looking forward thinking, this is all that there's going to be. This is all that there is because of what's gone on in the past. This is all the Lord has for me. And friends, I want you to know that there is a sin that takes place in our heart when we limit what God wants to do with us. I don't care how old you you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care the mistakes you've made. I don't care what your past is. You need to hear God speak into your life today and tell you that God's not done with you yet. Do you know how I know that? Breathe in and breathe out. Because you just took a breath. God is not done with you yet. And in fact, What's so amazing about the call that he issues to Moses is that he tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, the God of the patriarchs, I am their God. It's fascinating that Jesus would actually quote this very verse in the New Testament. In fact, he quoted it in a strange place. They were challenging him. The Sadducees were challenging him on whether or not there was actually resurrection from the dead because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus quotes this verse, and he quotes it because verb tenses are important. He quotes it because God does not say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the the God of Jacob. I am still their God. And when we know that, we know that God is not done with us yet because not only does God still have a plan for you in the life that you're currently living, but God is going to continue to have a plan for your life and still be your God even after you're in the ground. That's the God that you serve. Number two. Number two. And I love this. If God uses you It won't be you doing something for Him, but Him doing something through you. If God uses you, it won't be you doing something for Him, but Him doing something through you. The great thing about Moses at this place in his life, it wasn't that Moses could come to God and say, hey, listen to all I've got to offer you. Listen to to the youthful experience I have. Listen to my education. Listen to my resume. Oh, I can't imagine that you could possibly deliver these people if you didn't have me. In fact, nobody would have picked Moses. A dried up, withered old shepherd who was a murderer. If you were picking people to deliver the Israelite people, Moses would have been last on your list. If he was standing against the fence and you were making picks, he would have been the last one picked by either team, yet God drafts him first. Major Ian Thomas said this, and I love this. God was telling Moses, I don't need a pretty bush. I don't need an educated bush. I don't need an eloquent bush. Any old bush will do as long as I am in the bush. When we think about what it is that God can use about us, 
Too many of you are too interested in what your limitations are. And you need to be more focused on that you have a limitless God. And the issue here is, now, now we're going we're gonna to go a little deeper. I need you to stay with me here. Is that you have an advantage over even all the Old Testament saints. Because God had said to him, you are standing on holy ground. The presence of God was in this place around this burning bush. As Moses would lead them out, you'll remember that they built a tabernacle. That tabernacle would eventually become the temple. And the tabernacle and the temple symbolized the presence of God. The Holy of Holies, eventually the Ark of the Covenant. You'll remember that the Ten Commandments went in the Ark of the Covenant. And that is how you approached God. You had to go into the temple because it was the God resided there. Jump forward to the New Testament, post-resurrection, post-ascension of Jesus, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, and now if you're saved, the Bible tells you that the Holy Spirit indwells you, which means that now that the, God does not reside in a temple made by human hands, but He resides in the hearts and lives of believers, those who are redeemed. So friends, I want you to know you are standing on holy ground, but not because of that carpet and not because of that concrete. You're standing on holy ground because the very presence of God is inside of you. You are the temple of God. That's what he said in Corinthians, that now that God would reside in us, that we are God's temple. But Moses didn't really understand the commandment. And I'm afraid if we misunderstand God's commands, we get it all wrong. Moses says to God in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, if God were really going to answer that, it would sound something like this. You are nobody. You are inadequate. You're an 80-year-old, washed-up, murdering shepherd. That's what you are. That's the answer to the question. Yet a whole lot of people will come to God with the same thing when He issues a call on their life. Well, who am I? God's answer is you're nobody. E even if you've got great intellect, and even if you've got great education, and even if you've got a great resume, even if you're good looking, and even if you're athletic, and even if you're musically talented, you're nobody. You're inadequate. But Moses didn't hear the first part of God's command. Go all the way back to verse 8. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land. Who did God say was going to rescue these people? God was. God was going to rescue them. When it comes to the work of God, God does everything. You're just allowed to be part of the process. And so when God invites Moses, it's an incredible story of how God moves in and through people's life. You'll remember that in the Great Commission, so many people focus on evangelism in the Great Commission, which we should, that we are to make disciples of all nations. But don't forget the promise that we find in the Great Commission. And in the King James, it sounds like this. And lo, I will be with you even till the end of the age. If God called you to something and then didn't stay with you through that calling, you would be messed up royally and eternally. But what we find out is that God is not looking to call people who don't have blemishes and don't have problems and don't have past and don't have mistakes and aren't 80-year-old sheep herders, it's not just the perfect people. I've always enjoyed playing golf. I haven't played a lot of it. Um, and certainly if you watch my game, you'd be able to tell that I haven't played a lot of it. 
Mark Twain called golf a good walk gone bad. Um, but recently, my son and I have started playing a little bit more golf. He's gotten more interested in it, so we've been playing a little bit more golf. And so the other day, I was gathering up some golf balls, and because my mind works in weird ways, I just got to looking at the golf ball. And if every one of you can picture one right now, um, are they perfectly smooth? No, they're not. Because I couldn't leave well enough alone, I'm looking at different golf balls. And whether you're hitting a, uh, whether it is you're hitting a Titleist or a Max Fly or Bridgestone or whatever golf ball you're hitting, when you look at them, you notice that they're not only that there's some similarities, but there's also some differences because they all have dimples and marks. Some of them have a bunch of smaller holes or craters that are in the golf ball. Some of them have a mixed pattern of larger and smaller holes. So, so I couldn't help it. One day I just said, I got to figure out what's the deal with the dimples on golf balls. So I start researching it. I tell you, I'm, I'm weird. I got to know, what is, what is the answer to this? And so I read an article by an astrophysicist on golf balls. And so he, and by the way, Titleist, Bridgestone, all these big known companies, they have tons of researchers because it's a multi-billion dollar business that actually study this stuff. Not, exact, not just what the golf balls are made out of, but how you dimple the outside of the ball. So, so just to break it down real simple, not to get into all the science of it, but if you took the exact same golf ball made of the exact same components and you were to make it perfectly smooth on the outside, and then you were to take and apply equal force to that golf ball versus the golf ball with the dimples. The one that didn't that was perfectly smooth would fly about 130 yards. You take the exact same golf ball and put the dimple pattern on it, hit the golf ball, it'll fly 260 yards. That means that you double the flight of the golf ball by the dimple pattern that you find on it. I started keeping a golf ball with me. I like to keep one. I like to keep it in the little tray that's right there in my truck. Some of you keep little reminders of things, and some of you need to go get a golf ball. You need to, to keep it around. You need to keep it where you see it all the time. Because the very reason that some of you think you can't serve God is the very reason that God wants to use you. Follow me on this. That golf ball wouldn't fly at all if it didn't have the right dimple marks on it, if it didn't have the right flaws, if it didn't have the right imperfections to make it fly. So some of the reasons that some of you think that God can't use you are the very reason that God wants to use you, and now He can do more with you than He could have ever done before. Because of your bumps, because of your bruises, because of the sins you've been forgiven of, because of your past and because of your problems, you're not just an 80-year-old shepherd stuck in the desert of Midian. You've been being prepared for a moment such as this and friends I want you to know that you need to look at that ball and remember you know what I've got a lot of dimples too but God can use it God can absolutely use it number three I want you to know the common mistakes that keep us from being all God wants us to be and we talked about a couple of these last week number one is when you get ahead of God Moses got ahead of God when he was 40. He took matters in his own hand. He murdered a man, buried him in the sand, tried to cover up his sin, thought that the people would want to follow him, but all they saw him as is a murderer and one who was not one of them because he had grown up in this Egyptian palace. He had gotten ahead of God. Second group that makes a mistake are those people that quit because they fail. They quit because they fail. 
Have any of you ever quit anything? Just over the course of your life, you ever quit anything? I've quit a bunch of stuff. I was thinking about this uh, this week. Some of it I'm glad I quit. It was just time. Some other stuff I wish I'd have stuck with. But over the course of your life, I don't care if you're a kid or an adult, you've quit some things. I was thinking about it this week. One of the things that I, that I quit over the course of my life when I saw, see Sarge up here thumping on that bass and see Anthony rocking it out on the electric guitar and then I see Evan up here and he's just jamming. I took about three months of guitar lessons. I thought I was going to be something like, within a couple of weeks, I figured I'd be a lot like Eric Clapton. Like, I figured people were probably going to line up, you know, um, that I'd be jammed out. I never even figured out how to play Smoke on the Water. I mean, it, and, and so I realized very quickly that this guy's just want me to strum these chords, G, C, D. And I realized that if I wasn't going to rock out in a couple of months, that this wasn't for me, that I quit. I never picked a guitar back up. We got a lot of people that have quit a lot of things. And some of those, like me quitting the guitar, it's not like, you know, Rembrandt lost his paintbrush on that. I think the world's going to be okay that I don't play guitar. But some of you, some of you have quit on God. Some of you have quit on serving Him and following Him, and you've quit on God, and you've quit on Him because you've made some mistakes or had some problems. Which leads me to number three. And we're going to talk about this just a little bit more in a minute. But resisting the call of God. Moses does a lot of that. In fact, we're not just going to talk about that today. We're going to spend all week, all week next week, talking about what it looks like to resist the call of God. But when you combine these things together, these common mistakes of getting ahead of God and quitting when you fail and resisting the call of God, a lot of times it's that when we try to take things into our own hands, we end up just making them worse. Have any of you experienced that? As you know, I, I grew up loving to fish, still love to fish. If I had to pick one hobby or one pastime, that would be it. And growing up learning to fish, you probably, if any of you have fished at all, you know that you kind of go through stages in learning to fish. The first thing probably most people fished with was a cane pole. You had a cane pole with a string and a cork and a cricket. You probably started off brim fishing. And then when you graduated from the cane pole, you, come, you probably got something that looked a lot like a Zebco 33, a little push button rod and reel and, and, and that's what you learn to fish with and maybe if you took a step in between maybe you graduated from there to a spinning rod and, and you started fishing with that but most people especially if they bass fish they eventually will want to graduate to what's called a bait casting reel now if you're not familiar with a bait casting reel it's the one where after you d depress the button you cast it yourself but you have to control the line with your thumb how quickly it lets go out and then you have to control that line as it stop to try to keep it from what's known as the backlash the bird's nest now if you have never cast a bait casting reel and you don't fish a lot don't cast a bait casting reel um, it will end up being a complete nightmare but because I grew up loving to fish, I, I, I had to learn to do it. My dad just, I remember I was about nine or 10 and I just wanted to learn, wanted to learn, wanted to learn. And my dad's got a lot of strength. I don't know that patience is probably the one that I would have said was he was hitting a home run with. But I learned to do that. Some of you will recognize that. I learned to cast a bait casting reel on a red Ambassador 5000. 
And so I spooled it up, and, and we go out there. And when I tell you you can make an ever more holy mess out of monofilament line, it's, it's crazy. And so I'd go out there and backlash it, and then I would begin to try to get it out, and my dad would be watching me, and I'd say, no, I got it, I got it. But the whole time I'm just picking it, all I'm doing is making it worse, making it worse, making it worse. My dad had some kind of spiritual gift for getting backlashes out of reels. I mean, he could, he could absolutely do it. So he'd eventually, say, he'd eventually say, give it to me. So I'd give it to him, and some of the time he would be able to get it out. Well, it's amazing how in your life things repeat themselves because we've now gone through the transition at our house of casting a bait casting reel and watching that take place and learning all of that. And so I had a flashback when I found myself saying, just give it to me and I'll get it out of there. And I thought about that this week, how often that has happened in my life. Because not only with a bait casting reel, but it seems like so many times in my life, I make a mess out of things, I backlash it, I get, but instead of just taking it and saying, I can't get this out, I've messed this up too much, God, would you please help me? Would you keep getting out, help me get out of this jam? I make worse decisions, I keep trying to do it myself, and by the end of it, it looks like you're just sitting there saying, oh God, why didn't I just bring it to you in the first? You will backlash your life. You will backlash your life if you try to do it yourself and don't realize at some point that you need to hand it over. But you need to know this as well. Number four, there is a major difference in choices or options and the call of God. There is a difference in a choice and an option in the call of God. You see, what we're going to read about about Moses, especially as we get in the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4, is that Moses seemed to think that this was an option, like a multiple choice test. Hey, Moses, I'd appreciate it if you would do this. Here's some options. It was not a choice. It was not an option. It was the call of God. And I want you to hear me this morning. If God has issued the call on your life, then you need to answer the call. Now, don't avoid this by thinking, oh, he's talking to preachers. No, I'm talking to you. If God has called you to salvation, you need to answer the call. Yes, I am talking about there are some people that God has called to public ministry and they have avoided the call and you need to answer the call. But there's a whole group of people that God has called you into His service, but you have avoided serving Him for whatever reason. And today is a day to answer the call of God. But Moses did what a lot of people would do, and we're going to talk about more of these next week. But he gets, starts giving all kind of excuses. Oh, God, that, this, this isn't for me. I can't do it. And you see what his first excuse is? He said, I don't have all the information. What if they ask me who you are? What, what am I supposed to tell them? What, what do I say? And that's when God reveals his name, Yahweh, I am who I am. But Moses comes to him and he says, I just don't have all the information. How many people aren't serving the Lord because they don't think they know enough? I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, I can't really do that. I don't know enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. I'm not educated enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't think on my feet fast enough. And God says, I'm not interested in whether or not you have all the answers. I'm interested in whether you have me. I will be with you even till the end of the age. Friends, we need to know today that when we are thinking about God's equipping in our life, it's not about Moses, it's not about us. It's about who God is. 
So we're all the way back. We've made our way all the way back. My name is Yahweh. I am who I am. Fast forward to the Gospel of John. Do you know Jesus' favorite way to designate his identity in the Gospel of John? He said, I am. He said, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door or the gate for the sheep. I am the alpha and the omega. And every time he made an I am statement, it is that Jesus himself is claiming to be God because he is. And friends, if God has called you, if he has issued the call, it is that you need to come to the great I am. You need to come to Jesus. And you don't need to wait a moment longer. Come to Christ and come to Him today. I don't care about your excuses. I don't care about your past. It's not about who you are. It's about the God of the burning bush. It's about the great I Am. Listen to the call. Maybe it is today that God has called you to salvation, but you've come up with every reason why you can't be saved. You can be saved. Answer the call. Maybe it is that God has called you into ministry that you've thought about a hundred different reasons why you shouldn't do it. If God's called you into ministry, if God's called you into missions, then I can promise you that God will make you absolutely miserable any other life you lead if you don't follow the call of God. But more importantly is I want to talk to the rest of you who serve this church, who are members of this church. You're saved. But you've come up with a hundred reasons why you can't do certain things for God. Why you can't witness to your neighbor across the street. Why you can't serve in this church in a certain way. Why you don't read your Bible more than you do. That you don't, why you don't sing in the choir. Why you don't help in the nursery. Why you don't do a variety of other things. Friends, what I want you to do is answer the call. If God's placed it on your life, I want your answer to the Lord to be, Here I am. Send me. That's the only proper response. God has placed a call on your life. The question is, will you answer it? Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.